Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with a research and policy bent. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Haley. We're two researchers translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with policy, practice, and trends in tech and business. Just to tell you who we are, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Temple University, and I study how children learn through play. I did my PhD at NYU in developmental psychology, and I did my undergrad at Cornell, and I've taught courses at Brooklyn College and at NYU, and I'm really passionate about making child development research accessible to everyone. And putting the rest of us to shame. Stop, stop. No, that's you, Haley. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a senior policy analyst at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I research and write about best policies and practices in early child care and education. I did my PhD in human development at the University of Maryland, and I met Caitlin while working with Dr. Kathy Hirschpasik at Temple. So naturally, we're both interested in how children learn and how to support that learning. And we both love podcasts, so <laughs> match made in heaven. <laughs> For sure. Here we are. Let's do it. So we interview experts in the field on hot topics like remote learning, screen time, STEM skills, and the latest in early education policy and childcare. Each month, we start with the latest trends in cutting-edge research, popular media, and in the policy sphere. And for our first ever episode, The Maiden Voyage, getting us oriented for the new year, we want to give you a recap of 2021's greatest hits in developmental research and education policy. And boy, what a year it was. In 2021, as we all well know, the pandemic raged on in the U.S. and elsewhere, affecting every sector like politics, medicine, and of course, research and education. Caitlin, tell us a little bit about the latest science. You got it, Haley. So if there's one thing you need to know about research this year is that COVID has been totally changing the way that kids grow up. I'm going to tell you about the three key things researchers are most concerned about and then what popular media has to say about it. The biggest journal in child development, called Child Development, surprise, came out with a special section that talked all about the impacts of COVID on child development. And of course, it's unsurprising that COVID is bad for children's learning, but it's really interesting how. The articles in this issue talk about three reasons. The first is that COVID disrupted children's access to basic services that support their needs, things like food. Second, COVID interrupted childcare and school, of course, and it resulted in what researchers are calling loss of learning. And third, COVID has a really negative effect on both parents and children's mental health. A study from Georgetown found that when schools were closed, there was an increase in food insecurity, because kids who usually get free and reduced price lunch or get food packs from their schools weren't able to do so. Yikes. I mean, we've seen this in action throughout the pandemic, but it's always a little bit striking to see it reported as this this, like accumulated finding. A study found that since lockdown started, kids have increased their use of screen media. So things like television, tablets, and cell phones. But not only have kids been spending more time with media, but they've also been increasing their problematic use of that media. That means that children are getting frustrated when they can't use their screens. It means parents are having difficulty stopping their kids from using screens and that screens are interfering with general family activities. These increases in problematic screen use were even more pronounced for kids older than five than in younger kids. The authors have this clever line in the article where they say, quote, older children, 
who are seen as more independent, are quite literally more likely to be left to their own devices. Gotta love a good pun. Gotta love a pun in a scientific article. So on the business front, tech companies are responding to these alarming trends in kids' screen media use. On December 7th, Instagram announced that they will introduce parental control features called Take a Break. So this is a feature that will allow parents to see how much time their kids are spending on Instagram, it'll let them set time limits, and they'll also get notified if their child reports someone on the app. This feature also won't allow users to tag or even mention teenage users. So these features as part of Take a Break are all designed to help kids manage what researchers are calling their digital footprint. So there's increasing concern lately about digital footprints, which is the idea that there's so much information online that exists about one individual kid's activity. Wow, these sound like really incredible features. Yeah, I mean, innovative and really important right now. And it's great, too, because girls in particular might be vulnerable. So there have even been recent reports on Instagram that use of Instagram can worsen body image in teenage girls. And this is a topic that has been getting a lot of attention in news outlets. So the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, you name it, all came out with articles in the last few months about Instagram and its effects on teen body image. Instagram is literally being compared to a cesspool, and journalists are citing that one-third of girls feel worse about their bodies after scrolling on the app. Concerns around Instagram mostly focus on their algorithm, which suggests content that can be really toxic to child viewers, such as suggesting dieting accounts to girls who might be struggling with eating disorders. Wow. Please tell me there's been major movement to combat these issues. Luckily, yeah. Researchers and businesses have really been tackling these things head on. So these concerns are coming to a head in the very near future because Adam Masseri is testifying in front of the Senate about Instagram. Hmm. He's been saying that they've piloted their take a break features, and they do think that these could be effective at curbing excessive app use. They say that in some of their pilot studies that about 90% of users leave the take a break reminders on once they have been set on their devices. Critics are still wondering, though, will this really be enough to curb the problem? Or are these kind of issues inherent to the social media platforms themselves? So buckle up for 2022, where we see how these trends unfold in research and the news. Thanks, Caitlin. Wow. I mean, social media is such a prevalent part of our daily lives, or mine anyway. I'll freely admit it. Me too, yeah. It's really incredible then that like the research community has really come together on this topic. The hottest business in education policy through the second year of the pandemic continued to be children's instructional losses. And in the height of discussions about President Biden's Build Back Better Act, how to support early child care and education professionals. Kids struggled with the instability and isolation of yet another pandemic year. Allison Klein wrote for Edweek, quote, the score declines were evident across the board. For instance, in reading, students grades three through eight started the school year in roughly the same place academically as kids entering those grades back in the 2018-2019 school year, or the most recent pandemic-free school year. But the 2020-2021 students ended the year roughly three to six percentile points behind their 2018-19 counterparts. And this was particularly true for students historically most at risk. So Black and Latino students experienced greater declines than their white and Asian peers. And the students weren't the only ones struggling. A common theme among teachers and early child care professionals is that they have left the profession in droves. That is crazy. 
I know it's insane. And this is, you know, predates the pandemic too. And it's almost like for the same reason. And that's that they straight up do not get paid enough. Snaps. I just like want to snap every time I hear people say teachers don't get paid enough. I know it. I know it. And keep in mind too, that like early childcare and education professionals are quite literally the only sector of workers who have to work with a largely unmasked and unvaccinated population because the kids are too young. The Hill reported that even before the pandemic, like I mentioned, childcare workers were, on average, some of the lowest paid workers in the country, which, like, stab me in the heart, please. During the pandemic, these issues only worsened, with rotating quarantines and workers who left because they were burdened with their own home and childcare. A recent study by the Institute of Education Sciences even found that the rate of turnover at childcare centers was directly related to their pay. This reminds me too, Haley, of the great resignation that tons of people across different professions are quitting their jobs. And so I think it makes a lot of sense that teachers are one of the people that comprise that because what you're saying about their pay being so low and the conditions being so hard. So yeah, it's just, that's, that's crazy. It's unprecedented too. I know. Yeah. And it's really great because like across all other work sectors, the power dynamic between employee and employees really shifting and employees really are now in a space to say like, wait a second, I deserve to be treated like a human. Yeah. And so it's, <laughs> it's really changing the you know public narrative uh, around what it means to be employed and like what an employee should have to tolerate in order to make a decent living. And for educators and early childcare workers, like they're just in such demand and these similar issues were discussed earlier this month by the Brookings Institution, too. Um, Daphne Pasuk and Justin Dormel just wrote this incredible real-time study that they were able to conduct because of a lottery of teacher pay boosts that were distributed to some, but not all, early child care centers in Virginia. So for those participating teachers eligible for that additional funding, those schools that they worked in saw turnover cut in half. So it is making a difference getting pay boosts in retention, right? Who would have thought? It's a total shocker. Yeah, who would have thought? And you pay people <laughs> off if they want to do their job more. Really? And it, paying attention to this problem, especially in regard to you know early education and early childcare, is incredibly important because we know in the research sphere how critical teachers are to kids' outcomes. And even to their developing interests, particularly in STEM, that catch-all acronym that stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. And so that's why, in addition to funding specifically to recruit and train high-quality teachers, the Build Back Better Act has a line dedicated to improving access to technology, business partnerships, and the resources to recruit and retain highly qualified STEM teachers. Kids just learn better when they're able to form stable, attached relationships with their teachers. It's important to note that the news isn't all bad, and students also felt the same way. Many, in fact, reported that they've learned some key skills, like confidence in their abilities to face enormous challenges, which the pandemic definitely qualifies as. Establishing their identity with limited access to the friend circles who are usually so integral in that process and feeling more equipped to advocate for themselves and their learning needs. Kudos to the resilient students of 2021. I love that they're seeing a silver lining in all this. I know, they're leading the way. <laughs> Looking ahead to 2022, we've got some promising solutions to support childcare workers and educators with more funding and better training to provide financial aid to families who need the boost to access childcare services in the first place. And even before federal intervention, some states like Colorado 
are planning to provide free universal preschool with easy access to the neediest families. And folks, I cannot tell you how hype I am about this. It really lays the groundwork for more dialogue about this issue and hopefully uh, in the near future, expanding those efforts to early child care too. So I think there are going to be incredible changes in the year to come and we're excited to see how it unfolds. On a final note, we're also keeping our eyes on the role of technology in kids' learning. It's no secret to anyone that digital technologies have become a drastically larger part of kids' educational experiences since the pandemic hit, and it's given teachers new insight into leveraging ed tech across subject areas both during and after the pandemic, whenever that may be. But it's important to note that high tech doesn't always mean high quality. And so we'll need to learn a little bit more about what actually happens when kids engage with digital media to figure out what works and what doesn't. Thanks, Haley. So now we'll move to the most fun part of the podcast where we interview a special guest. Today we're interviewing Dr. Andy Ribner, an expert in kids' emerging math concepts and self-regulatory skills, and also an expert in the consequences of screen media on young children. Andy received his VA from Wesleyan, and he was my PhD classmate at NYU, and he's now a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Pittsburgh in the Learning Research and Development Center, where he works with Dr. Melissa Libertis. His work has been published in Child Development, learning and instruction, developmental science, and more. And outside of research, most importantly, Andy is an avid baker, and he has an adorable 80-pound dog named Jax. So it's so great to have you today, Andy. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I also have a cat whom you know named Heidi. Heidi, of course. You couldn't leave her out, especially since she's sleeping right (laughs) behind me. She took a really vigorous bath during one of my earlier meetings. Um, So that was fun, too. Like a cat bath? Like she was grooming herself vigorously? Yeah, but she's very rotund. (laughs) And so it's not a, it's not a, like, regal bath. It's more of a, like, I have to reach my back (laughs) with all of these, like, ridiculous turns and facial expressions. Very cute. Gotta love a cat bath in the background. So you came out with so many articles this year, it was hard to just pick a couple to focus on. But we really want to talk about the ones where you address screen time and COVID, because a couple of your articles like really hit on some of the big themes that we were talking about in, in this episode. So first, I wanted to ask you, what motivated you to study screen time during COVID? What was kind of the impetus for this work? As COVID was rearing its ugly head, and we were starting to think about COVID, And that thing that would only take, you know, a couple weeks if everyone wore masks and uh, flattened the curve, uh, thinking about, oh, well, kids are spending an acute amount of time inside where they are no longer going to school, maybe. They are interacting more with family members who are home, and they are less able to kind of do the normal kid thing of playing with neighbors, friends family members, and so what are they going to turn to? And the original goal of the study was to look at time one, we've recently entered lockdown, everyone is still in lockdown, what are kids doing? What were kids doing before based on a parent report? And then we were going to follow up with them six months later and see, okay, now that this COVID thing is done, what do we report 
currently and retrospectively. And so obviously we had really high hopes of what COVID would look like and the fact that it would be long in the past, uh, six months after March and April 2020. My particular interest there and, and the way that I inserted myself in this large multi-country data collection was to insert various activity questionnaires and questionnaires related to screen time or electronic screen-based media use. And so we were interested in parent report of what was happening at the moment and parent report of what was happening previous to that. With no kind of implications of is screen time good, is screen time bad, but just a general sense of what has screen time looked like previously and currently. And I'm curious just how you picked those countries. So you look at Australia, China, Italy, Sweden, the UK, and the US, how you had the access to data from all those different places. Yeah, so the selection of countries was really intentional and at the same time, really lucky. So it was partially a combination of where we had connections. Again, this started in the UK, um, where I really credit Claire Hughes. Uh, Claire Hughes, I've worked with on a project in the past, looking at the uh, transition to parenthood, the role of, uh, or the ways that parents and children interact over the first two years of the first child in a family's life. And so Claire Hughes was really the central node here. She pulled together the people from various countries. And so she had, uh, Claire had different places where she was already connected and different places where she was reaching out to. And so part of this was to make it a very intentional effort to recruit countries who had different approaches. So Sweden was the kind of country that was not taking any lockdown measures. And we wanted to make sure that we had an adequate sample from Sweden to see, okay, given a world in which we're saying nothing is happening, what does this look like? Then we had folks who had other lockdown approaches. Australia had a very strict lockdown at the beginning of 2020, which continues today. The US had really varying approaches in different areas of the country. The UK and Northern Italy uh, were some of the earliest hit in the pandemic. And then uh, China, where there was the original cases of COVID, was actually at the time kind of coming down from its peak um, in the area where we were looking. So we had kind of people who had longer COVID exposure. We had people who were in the midst of COVID exposure and folks who were kind of pretending as though COVID didn't exist as far as policy was, uh, was concerned. Yeah, and on average, you found across all the different countries that children use more screens post-COVID, and that it's mostly for entertainment purposes and also for educational app use as well. Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, we found, an, on average, an increase of screen use nearly an hour across all countries that was driven largely by screen use for entertainment purposes, where we saw an almost 40-minute within child increase in screen use over time. And some of that was also in screen use for educational apps where we saw about a 20 minute increase in screen use uh, from parent report of before COVID to parent report during COVID. That's so fascinating. What, what was it exactly that was driving these changes? I think for, a large, for the large part, this was driven by the fact that families were moving inside more. They were less able to interact with family, friends, and neighbors 
outside of the house. And a lot of kids were spending a lot less time in school. This, these data were collected mostly in April 2020. And so this was firmly in the middle of the school year. Folks remember this far back. The beginning of the pandemic was a bit of a free-for-all. Some states, some cities, some municipalities, some schools, some districts decided to go for full online learning from the jump. Some decided to keep hybrid learning as an option. Some just said, we're going to pick up next year and see what happens because students don't have access, students don't have internet, students don't have resources in order to be getting on the computers. Uh, or other touchscreen devices where they might be accessing their schoolwork or interfacing with their teachers on a regular basis. So some kind of had, just print out and do this worksheet. That's your schoolwork for the day. Good luck. And so that by itself left seven, eight hours a day in which kids were not doing something that's typically not conducted on a screen. So for the most part, we had kids who were at home when they would otherwise have been in school, and parents who were newly at home in many cases and had to find a way to entertain their kids while they also got their work done, or in a kind of other case, parents who still had to be working in person, who had to be manning hospitals, who had to be doing retail work, and their kids were at home with very little to no supervision. And so they might have been estimating the amount of time that their kids were using screens. But I think it's important to think about when you suddenly get seven to eight hours more with a three to eight-year-old child and you still have to do your full day's work, it's crazy. And it often means that you turn to something that is sometimes used as a babysitting tool. And if you can just get that one more hour of work in to get close to the productivity that you were having before when you were in an office and not in a household with all of your other family members, it's worth it. It's let's, let's put the screens on. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of it is just like a survival thing too, you know, like how do I get my kid entertained for the next two hours, you know, so I can finish work. So very necessary. Absolutely. And and I just want to touch on one thing that I know you brought up at the beginning in introducing myself and talking about the consequences of screen-based media use. Consequences has a negative connotation, um, but I want to be clear that in thinking about the consequences of electronic screen-based media use, consequences can be positive outcomes or they can be negative outcomes. And we've seen both in the literature on electronic screen-based media use. And a lot of it depends on the content and the context in which kids are viewing media. And we don't have those data in this particular analysis. Yeah, for sure. And I think that point too about the context of it and like parents' mental health and how it intersects with kids and their just activities of daily living is really important too. And like with survey data, it's so hard to get that rich context. Right. And absolutely. And this is a huge limitation of this particular study. And I'm glad to see that there are various papers coming out looking at more nuanced measures of electronic screen-based media use during COVID. This was a rapid response. And it came out so quickly too. 
Yeah. I mean, reverse engineering that process is really wild too. Like the, the publication process takes an incredibly long period of time with, I assume, you know, suggested revisions from editors or from readers, but just like engineering the study to begin with and carrying out your methods and collecting all of that data, analyzing all that data, coordinating across multiple different sites in different countries. I mean, that is a colossal effort. I feel like just to have any data at all on COVID and how it's affecting kids within months, I think is crazy or even within the year. So, cause science is so slow. So to be able to have just like a, a broad measure of it, that's quick. I think it's, it's so important to have surveys like this. Yeah. My favorite thing to talk about electronic screen-based media use is talking about how kids really start to see an effect on their attention, their self-regulatory skills, especially as the amount of screen use starts to go up and thinking about that in the context of what we're doing. Okay. We're saying that kids shouldn't spend more than two hours a day on a screen while we're spending 10 hours a day on a screen writing about how kids shouldn't spend 10 hours a day on a screen. And and he's all doing all of this in the context of we're living in a pandemic too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like we're busy studying the consequences of screens from our screens from different countries. So it's just funny to think about. Very meta. Yeah, it's super meta. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then there's all of the social component. And we talk about how social contingency is really important for learning from screens. And so in that sense, yes, we have that social contingency. Just to define it, because it can be a little bit jargony, social contingency is just when there's a back and forth exchange between two different people, even if it's through a screen. So if I'm on Skype or Zoom and I'm talking to Haley and she's talking back and we have this real time immediate back and forth, that is a socially contingent interaction. And then we all go and relax and we turn off the socially contingent things and we boot up our phones while we're watching TV and we're multitasking doing that. And we're trying to do some data analysis while we're also watching Schitt's Creek and none of it's getting done well, just as we know it won't when we have kids watching TV while also doing something else. For sure. Yeah, this is, I'm hitting like hour nine today of screen time. <laughs> so it's rough. Makes total sense. I'm really interested in uh, how all of this work is sort of sitting juxtaposed with what we, I think, generally as a field have accepted as best practices for screen-based media use for kids. I mean, the American Pediatric Association has even released recommendations saying, you know, children under age two should have no exposure at all unless, you know, it's like FaceTime or Google Duo or whatever, and it's supervised by um, a care caregiver and kids under age five should be heavily limited. Um, and yet we see these huge spikes in screen use across ages for multiple different purposes in multiple different countries. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about this Screens Across the Pond article where you discuss the power of pediatric recommendations for shaping screen media use, um, particularly for infants, and give us a sense of what the current recommendations are, how they might be working in different countries, things like that. Yeah, I think this is a really good question. I think the role of policy is something that we don't really think about as far as the ways that it affects the on-the-ground parent. A large governing body of pediatricians, yes, they have a say in what parents do or what they recommend for parents, but yeah, I think that there is this relation between pediatric recommendations and the amount of screen use for young children. And that's become something that people are increasingly interested in, particularly as the landscape of media use 
and screen use is changing rapidly and wildly. And so the AAP recommendations and the recommendations of other pediatric organizations and other health organizations, including the WHO, have really been based in correlational data and based in kind of intuition. And so for that reason, there are a number of countries, England included as one of them, that doesn't have numbers-based approaches when it comes to screen-based media recommendations. So organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the World Health Organization, WHO, have more strict screen use guidelines, which, as you said, are limited to children under two between the years of 18 months and age two, should be limited to about 30 minutes of screen time at most, slowly ramping up the amount of screens that children are using, where from ages two to age five, it should be about an hour, hour and a half, and then beyond that, try to limit screen use to about two hours. Uh, try to limit screen use unless it's something that is socially contingent on another person, that being something like FaceTime. Whereas others like the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health avoid taking numbers-based approaches. And part of the reason for that is that there's not a lot of data on that on the cutoffs that other folks use. So we can use correlational data. We A lot of our correlational data has shown that increases in screen use might result in increases in problem behavior or decreases in school readiness or something like that. But we don't really know what those numbers are, and we don't have any causal evidence to suggest that screen use is good, is bad, one kind of screen use is better, is worse. We're starting to get some of those data, particularly from folks who are looking at uh, screen-based learning. So people like Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, Rachel Barr are all doing this kind of work. And Andy, I just want to jump in here when you're talking about correlations. Correlations just means two things are related to each other. And when we're talking about causal evidence, we're talking about cause and effect. So we know that one thing directly leads to another. So it is a really tricky problem in science because you have this tension between using correlational data, which is valuable and it's much easier and quicker to collect, but at the same time, we also want to draw from causal sources that really get at the heart of what is driving relationships. I think for a lot of health organizations and pediatric organizations, it becomes this question of where do we take into consideration the real world? And where do we take into consideration the most extreme extrapolation of the correlational data that we have? And so in large part, I think they've kind of fallen in the middle, more erring toward the side of, or at least in the US, erring toward the side of, if we extrapolate the data to an unnecessary extreme, this is what we find. but to say that children shouldn't be exposed to screens at all is really unrealistic and can really limit the lives of parents of young children. The last paper I wanted to ask you about, Andy, is your forthcoming paper about COVID and numeracy. In this study, you look at the relationship between numeracy and health numeracy and behavior. Could you give us a little preview of this study? And also, what exactly is health numeracy? Is that making determinations about health data? 
Yeah, health numeracy is essentially that it's using numerical data from health organizations or from doctors, and it's the ability to interpret that. Um, so it's things that might be highly related to, say, COVID, where thinking about risk factors and relative risk or proportions of people who are getting sick. And so uh, there's this really interesting set of research that's largely coming out of health researchers and largely coming out of kind of medical journals looking at the variations in health numeracy and effects on health outcomes. So we find that people who report more struggles with interpretation of health-related data um, and health-related numbers actually have a higher mortality rate. Such an important type of literacy to have because I feel like especially when the numbers for COVID first started exploding, everyone who was not an epidemiologist was kind of like, what do these numbers mean? What does this mean for me? So I feel like having strong health numeracy skills as adults, but also as children, it's like a huge topic that's really important. Yeah. So that was really what drove the interest in this particular paper. This project was, again, a collaborative project um, with largely with folks set in Canada. And we were really interested in, okay, we know that there are a whole bunch of things associated with the development of certain COVID attitudes. And we wanted to know whether numeracy was one of them and whether adults who were uh, more comfortable with numbers and with large numbers or with small numbers like percentages and proportions, if they were going to be more likely to make certain choices when it came to making decisions around COVID safety or COVID risks. We did find a, albeit small association, but statistically significant one with large numbers and uh, COVID attitudes and behaviors. So when we were thinking about the number of people who are being hospitalized, the number of people who are dying, I saw a value today that in March 2020, there were about 30,000 new cases of COVID per day, which is a lot. We usually don't see something in case numbers that high, whereas yesterday there were 1.1 million new cases. There's a point of diminishing returns. Like it's sort of when someone says the word infinity to me, I'm like, wow, that's a big value. But like, I have no way to actually conceive of like how many people that like 1.1 million positive cases in a day. My brain is just that's a large number, but <laughs> can't do anything else with it. Yeah, and and thinking about kind of the early cases versus now, um, that was enough to trigger mass panic, and now we're like, eh, what's another million? I wonder how health numeracy would intersect with like burnout, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fatigue from like having to process so many numbers and the cognitive burden of constantly making those evaluations too. You found generally this strong relationship between low health numeracy and increases in mortality. So it seems to me then that it's not just people looking at it and saying like, that's confusing. I don't quite understand what these percentages or proportions mean. Everyone from the CDC is telling me I should wear a mask. Like maybe I'll just do that. It seems then that they just sort of disregard the general consensus or what the medical community is trying to communicate. Can you talk a little bit more about what that relationship looked like? 
when we think about early numeracy, we tend to think about early numeracy in terms of kind of this single parameter term of this child is better at math, when math really means a lot of different things. And so it means things like basic numeracy, understanding of set sizes, um, ordinal relations, what number comes before or after. When you make an ordered list, where does seventh fall in that line? Um, and things like data analysis and statistics. And we talk about those things as being college level courses, but it's something that really young children are using on a day-to-day -day basis, seeing mathematical principles presented to them visually. And I think as we start to, as a society, make decisions about what we value and what we value um, from educational purposes or what we value from what educational curricula should look like. If I had to make a bet, I would say that increasingly we are going to move toward interpretation of visual data. A lot of the math that we see in day-to-day -day curricula at this moment, some of it does include interpretation of visual data, but a lot of it's making nonsense judgment. It's solving a problem that doesn't exist in the real world. And so using numerical data in a graphical form is something that we need to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's presented on the news. Oftentimes you see all those memes pop up of pie charts that add up to 30 or that add up to 180 or bar charts that the y-axis doesn't actually make sense or that jumps from the difference between zero and 20 to the difference between 20 and 1,020. We need to have the, the numeracy skills to be able to interpret these data and then make decisions based on them. And I think I would like to see curricula move more in that direction. It's encouraging to me this idea of teaching kids these skills because kids who are living through COVID have this generational trauma and I feel like hear a lot of these assessments that are taking place. And so to have kids that have a really robust sense of what these numbers actually mean, um, I think could help us prevent the next pandemic <laughs> or help us weather it better. Data viz is the skill of the 21st century. <laughs> so sort of returning to our previous discussion about kids' uh, electronic screen media use, I'd love to know in the course of your work how you would rate the synchrony between popular media about this topic and the empirical research on this topic? So research takes a really long time. Whereas people can make media for consumption really, really quickly. And we as researchers can't necessarily say with any degree of confidence what makes a good show, what makes a good media project. And so one thing I think people are starting to do is start to look at the characteristics of what we might consider to be good or bad media. And so when things are contingent, when they are responsive to a child, which obviously touchscreen devices have a greater likelihood of being. So Andy, what are some of the best practices when watching television? A lot of it has to do not necessarily with the content, but the context of where children are interacting with electronic screens. So. It can be Dora the Explorer, it can be Sesame Street, which are great shows, but watching them with a partner, with a partner who's encouraging you to engage with the show, 
makes a huge difference in the extent to which we are learning from that show. So when Dora says, everybody say map, it really matters when the kid actually does say map. And it really matters that there is a pause in which children can respond to that and can think that their voice matters because then it becomes more of having a conversation and less of watching a scene take place without you. So I I wondered if you could um, tell us a little bit more about what you found to be the biggest misconception about kids' engagement with screens. I think the greatest misconception, particularly with very young kids, is that screens are bad. And yes, the AAP and the WHO recommend that very young children don't engage with screens, but oftentimes that comes at a cost. And that cost is often a parent's mental health or a parent's ability to do something else. And it is far more meaningful for a child to have an attentive, loving, caring, present caregiver than it is for them to have not watched a screen for five minutes. All of the effects and effect sizes that we're talking about are relatively small. So watching TV for an hour as a 12-month-old, it's not going to make the difference of getting into college versus not, of getting that first job versus not, of even being the top of your kindergarten class versus not. It makes a lot more of difference if parents have the chance to take care of themselves, to feel rested, to feel happy, to feel engaged, and to engage with their kids on a day-to-day basis. So I'll have people say to me, well, I didn't do this because I didn't want my kid watching a screen. Well, did you need to do that for yourself? Because if you did, maybe your kid should have watched an episode of Sesame Street. And so I think it's really important that we don't think about screen use in terms of black and white. Um, It's not one thing ruins everything. If you're regularly setting up your four-month-old to watch Baby Einstein with any regularity, maybe think of some other activities. The number one thing that I got when I was asking parents about their screen use patterns in four-month-olds was, oh, well, when he was six months, he loved Elmo. So I would turn Elmo on so I could cut his nails. Yeah, screens can be amazing devices for distracting a child. And yeah, we should take advantage of that because if it's for your child's health or safety, it makes a much larger difference than it would for a child to not be watching a screen at all. It's ultimately to the detriment of the child too. I mean, parental self-care helps to create this buffer for kids to reduce toxic stress and to help the parent be more present, more patient, more communicative and interactive. So it feels like a particularly poignant message for right now when parents are pretty strapped and they're trying to wear many hats at the same time for many of them with very limited or no resources or support. So it feels like the right time to be having this conversation and say, it's okay if there are other measures that you need to take to make sure that you're getting your needs and therefore your child's needs met, take them. That's so true. And I feel like sometimes the voices of parents get lost when we're talking about these recommendations. As a parent, sifting through all of these different rules and restrictions, you're right, the heart of the the parent-child relationship, I feel like, is really what's most important. It's not about if you follow all the rules correctly. For sure. Right. And parent self-care, I mean, particularly if we think historically in a world where there was a lot more co-rearing of children, which gave an individual parent a lot of autonomy and a lot more opportunity to take care of themselves. We are not dealing with that. And oftentimes that is at the expense of the parent. 
COVID parents are such heroes. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Like all the COVID parents listening, you're such a hero. (laughs) Yeah, my hat is off to everyone who has raised a child or kept themselves functional through this. For sure. And then as a final question, Andy, we always ask at the end, what is the best part of being a kid in 2022? Sure. Uh, I assume you're asking this about me because I am a kid. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good question. I love it. It's, I don't know, I feel like every, so many things are a bit of a double-edged sword. Not necessarily any more or less than in the past, but there are just so many opportunities for exploration. And whether that's exploring on electronic screen-based media, touch screens, phones, or whether that's exploring your local neighborhood and local environment. I think we're in a really unique time where people are feeling the stress of the pandemic, but also the opportunities provided by the pandemic. And a lot of that, at least for me, has been in neighborhoods and uh, neighbors really kind of stepping up and caring for one another. Such a good point. Thank you so much, Andy, for joining us today. Thanks. Um, Yeah, I loved chatting with you guys. This was really wonderful, though. And your work is insanely impressive and timely and important. So thank you so much. That's all we have for today, dear listeners. Like this podcast if you liked it. Subscribe or follow if you loved it. And we'll see you next month for a chat about social policy supporting comprehensive childcare services with our next special guest, Dr. Samantha Melvin. 